Dystoplicans of the world. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The morning of April 28th, 2007 is where today's story will begin. A resort metropolis crammed in a space that was 30 square miles in size and on the Bahia del Mercado side of its border with Costa de la Grande in West Brumel Beach to say that the weather was perfect for a vacation would more than downplay how special today was. The navigation system in a red GS coupe had Zanby as its destination, a complex of lavish dorm-like suites that had everything a college kid would want. Listening intently to resin dress, Fern drove Belgrave was her passenger, and Ricky had the back to herself. They sang along to a song about a girl celebrating her sweet 16 with the boy of her dreams and no one else. The lyrics jingled to the two dressing like royalty, dancing well after the sunset, kissing before a full moon, and declaring their love for one another. An adorable feel-good story that had Fern, Ricky, and Belgrave wanting to be the girl and lusting for Robbie the Fourth to be the boy, today being their chance to realize that dream. Minutes later, a yellow Navigator subcompact parked and switched off in Zanby's basement parking garage. Its navigation system told Calypso, Cameras, Cynthia, Akinbinu, and Claire Zhang that they've reached their destination. Their stayed stairs sobered to those that focused on melting away Robbie's false display so that the world could see him for who he really was. A promo asked viewers if they're looking for true love. Happily ever after, a real-life Prince Charming, the ultimate white knight, and someone who'll make their dreams and wishes come true. It said that if yes was the answer to all those questions, then Robbie was the man who could give that to them and the play apartments were where they'll compete for the privilege of calling him their boyfriend. After the promo faded to black, the competition's festively beachy logo vibrantly looped on the stage's triplet screens. Fern, Ricky, Belgrave, Calypso, Cynthia, and Claire were six of the 32 randomly selected from a pool of 85. Seated to look up at the stage, the girls were told by Xander Jr. to put their hands together for his lifelong best friend and the man they came to see, Robbie. From the control room, Yaro Moretto deviously smiled with her arms crossed as her son swaggered on stage to a tsunami of girly shouts. Her smile may have been that of a proud mother, but it hid her yearning to start a very different kind of competition. 
thankful for the girls' unbridled love, Robbie congratulated them for being fortunate enough to play a game where victory will be the sweetest it's ever been. Calypso thought of that being when Cynthia and Claire stand up, point at him, and tell the other selectees what it's really like to be his girl. She and the two beside her did just that, but Robbie somehow anticipated it, yelling that those three had guns before a word about him could be said. Fern, Ricky, Belgrave, and every girl who wasn't Calypso, Cynthia, or Claire gasped, shrieked, and urgently faced them. With the exception of Yarrow, everyone in the control room freaked out as three of the girls trying to shoot Robbie was the last thing they foresaw. Security guards tackled Calypso and her acquaintances slammed their faces on the floor and handcuffed them the way police would subdue felonious suspects. Feeling their brains move on impact, those three couldn't form sentences until the rung bells stilled enough for their nervous systems to normalize. Calypso loudly denied that she or the two with her were armed, causing Cynthia and Claire to say the same until they felt the guards holding them stuffed guns into their back pockets. Gasping in shock, those three froze when their arresters asked them why they had pistols on their person. Ricky stared at them with a face that had a W, T, and an F. Fern felt hurt in seeing three souls let their firsts for vendetta ruin their promise, and Belgrave shakily thanked Robbie and his guards for stopping what would have been a massacre. The other girls' reactions were either one of the three or a mix of them, putting Yarrow in a mood that bubbled excitedly. Robbie told the guards to take the would-be mass shooters to his mother's office and handcuff them there until the police come. Other than him and Yarrow, only Calypso, Cynthia, and Claire knew where they were really going, begging the other girls to help them, but got cringing, unsympathetic silence instead. Robbie dismissed the 29 remaining girls for an hour-long recess that'll orient them into their new living situation. He and Xander walked out of the conference room and high-fived their handshake for a job well done. Both guys were unaware of what was taking shape at the BS2 field office in Delgadopolis, and it had them as its subjects. Law enforcers sat before their then-director, Livingston Sr., former mayor of Myronbury, and a carryover from the Joby Sr. administration. As their briefing went on, the girls were still in the conference room gathering around a chart that assigned them by suite. Fernand Belgrave were happy to learn that they'll be sharing an apartment, but Ricky was dismayed to find herself and Carrie's big sister Ruby sharing a pad. Some of the other girls smiled at where they were assigned, 
but many others frowned at said designations. In Suite 609, Ricky helped herself to a complimentary kombucha and saw Ruby sit on her bed with her head down and pupils pointing at the window. She congratulated her roomie for finally mustering up the courage to even look at her, saying that it shows her effort to make their time in one space tolerable. Ricky then sneered that no one can really be sure what Eremedios is thinking until they act on it, citing pervy Rudy as an example. Fernand Belgrave made themselves at home in Suite 304 by watching Resentres close out Bromelia in the Good Morning with a song about a woman in her early 20s parenting her grade school sister. Both girls couldn't resist singing along while quaffing small red Moscados, but the good time they had erased itself the second. Rudy and Bobby wished viewers a nice day as the boy band sang past the broadcast's fade to black. Before the story that came out a day ago, Fern and Belgrave loved the Remedios pair with all their hearts. They would have wanted to give Rudy and Bobby big ol' hugs and been comfortable spending whole days with them in public and private when the pair wasn't co-hosting a staple of Bromelian TV, they advocated for child development by organizing field days meant to unite Bromelia's young through fun and food. Teens like Fern and Belgrave saw Rudy and Bobby as role models who could be trusted and wouldn't even fathom harming another soul or prey on anyone, much less. Few now knew what to make of the Remedios pair, feeling stuck between the good they've done and horrors they stood accused of unleashing. Belgrave couldn't believe she took Rudy's side when Trinity alleged that he locked her in his dressing room and sexually assaulted her. Fern told her not to be mad at herself, reminding her that Mr. Remedios and Mrs. Rubio were the adults and not her. She did comment that Rudy's denial was convincing and eloquent, whereas Trinity's accusation sounded feigned and sloppy, which was why she expects little to come of it. Moving to a separate matter, Belgrave asked Fern what her impressions were of Zandby and the play apartments thus far. She specifically wanted to know if her friend noticed any red flags about Robbie, Xander, or their situation in general. Fern said that aside from the would-be massacre, she didn't notice anything else that struck her as off or out of place, pressing Belgrave to tell her what she was getting at. That answer never came thanks to a fight that broke out three floors above, one that guards charged like rhinos toward in seconds. Sweet 609 turned into a punching bag for Ricky 
and Ruby to hit with themselves and the other person. Their fighting punched holes in walls, knocked furniture over, partly broke a bed in half, and tore apart the TV. It began when Ruby met Ricky's sneer with a look back so venom-filled that it made a rattlesnake appear comparatively cuddly. That insult was the latest shot and worst one yet to the back of a temper that spent the whole millennium struggling to contain itself. Ruby disciplined her rage as she got up, calmly walked to Ricky and dealt her nose a blow so blunt that it shattered, caved in, and took part of her maxilla with it. That punch broke a hubris with such force that it plunged into a furiousness that not even tungsten chains could restrain. Robbie's guards battering rams into Ricky and Ruby, thoroughly drubbing each other at the epicenter of vandalized clutter and blood splatter. They non-lethally shot the fight to an end that let them arrest and heave out both girls as their manic cries shocked their competitors, but horrified Fern and Belgrave most of all. Half a dozen sporty police cars raced to parked stops in the garage, then shut off their sirens and flashing lights. Eleven heavily armored cops jumped out, cautiously ran into the complex, and were directed by a shaken Yarrow to a small meeting room on the eighth floor where an aggressive entry followed. Calypso begged the officers not to lock her or her acquaintances up, fearing the humankinds they'll encounter there. She had read and heard stories of how the guards and other prisoners shamed and exploited people like her, Cynthia, and Claire. The girls were from West Shetland, Amarifrica, and the Sajonian Islands, but of Greek, Ethiopian, and Chinese ancestries also, respectively in both cases. Cynthia screamed that Robbie set her and her acquaintances up under the influence of the same fear that had Calypso panicking. Having spent 90 days in Bromelia's version of juvenile detention, she endured that shame and exploitation first hand and begged God to never ever put her through such a hell again. Claire repeated how the guards planted guns on her, Calypso, and Cynthia, yelling that Robbie raped and brutalized all three of them. She went on and on about how the officers should jail the hideous diabolist who destroyed her and her acquaintances and not them. Claire swore on her life and those of Calypso and Cynthia that they had no desire to kill, wound, or threaten him, the other girls, or anyone else. The officers believed those three, even if their pitiless looks and harsh handling of them secreted that collective sentiment. 
Robbie's telephone call to Fern and Belgrave informed them that Ricky was involved in an altercation with Ruby where injuries occurred. He told the two girls that their friend and her roommate have been taken to an in-building clinic to have their cuts and bruises treated and will face assault charges the second they're discharged. Robbie said it'd be in Fern and Belgrave's best interests to think less about Ricky and focus their energies on the competition at hand. He hung up and announced that the girls had 15 minutes to report for lunch in the cafeteria where it was all you can eat, consisting of chicken tenders, coleslaw, cornbread, and french fries. The buffet offered barbecue, ranch, ketchup, mustard, and buffalo dipping sauces, as well as ginger ale, root beer, cola, tonic water, and club soda to wash it all down. Robbie told the girls to stuff themselves because the lunch before them will be their last opportunity to pig out until the next morning when they'll indulge on a much different meal. Fern wasted no time helping herself to the food while Belgrave watched the other competitors line up and serve themselves. Some of the girls were reasonable with their portions while most weren't, but all tried chomping and slurping their trepidations away. Already nervous as hell, Belgrave was made even more so by Robbie's increasingly menacing smile, pulling her out of her seat, taking her to the buffet, having her take generous amounts of everything that was offered, sit next to Fern and eat with her. At the same time, Livingston speedily led his entourage of elite marks-people to a glitzy high-rise building just two blocks from Zandby. Their abrasive rush in startled the well-groomed white-collar types hanging out in the lobby. Livingston rudely showed his search warrant to reception and security while leading his officers into the elevators. During the pulls up, he and those under him held their rifles even tighter, anticipating what ambushed them during their last raid to meet them on this one. After the elevators stopped on the 18th floor and opened, Livingston led his people 10 feet down the hall and hacked an office's keyless front door unlocked. After lunch, Robbie had Ferd, Belgrave, and the other 25 girls change into swimsuits and meet him at the indoor water park. He was waiting for his contestants to show up when Xander called to let him know that their new office was just raided. Robbie learned that every one of its computers, laptops, hard drives, cell phones, and cameras had been seized. Xander Jr. was made aware of this by Xander Sr., who owned the skyscraper via his Zanker property group, painting over the existent possibility that the Kirchner's days 
as elites may be numbered. He could discern the severe worry in his father's breath, inhaling and exhaling with such unease himself. Xander Jr. was even more shocked at how unconcerned Robbie and Yara were about the incriminating content that Livingston was about to discover. He thought about how poorly he'd fare in prison after the legal bullet he narrowly dodged the previous year, having no want to roll that dice again. Xander asked Robbie and Yarrow why they weren't panicking, reminding them of what was in the now-seized electronics. To his good luck, he had this phone conversation in his suite, so the likelihood of anyone listening in was slim to none. Yaro ordered Xander to chill out because she and her son were way ahead of him, explaining that Livingston was in for a surprise that'll burst out like a confetti popper. Robbie said that his best friend's panicking was understandable and why he announced that the first challenge will be delayed by two hours. This delay irked girls like Fern who demanded that the competition either starts or gets walked out on, but others such as Belgrave started believing that the show wasn't what it claimed to be. Still at each other's throats, Ricky and Ruby initially intended to resume their fight in the city's municipal jail, thinking that no cops will stop them. But the further officers took the two underground, the more both girls doubted that their arresters were real police. Ruby asked the cops where she was being taken to, then when her question went on deaf ears, Ricky yelled it out, threatening to kick some blue butt if an answer didn't come. The girls were told that they'll see, eliminating any doubt they had about the arresters not really being police people. Ruby bent her knees and tumbled the fake cops, holding her off their feet, prompting Ricky to do the same to the ones restraining her. Once the officers fell like rolling barrels, the girls rolled themselves back up and darted harder than inmates attempting a jailbreak. Ricky and Ruby's mutual hatred boiled over in the form of handcuffed kicks meant to let one escape with the pleasure of knowing that they caused the other to get punished, resulting in both girls being re-subdued, feet from where they temporarily broke free and told that they'll soon wish they hadn't tried that. Livingston and his people returned to their office as a group and carried the electronics they packaged inside. A few moments were needed for them to decide which computer, laptop, hard drive, cell phone, or camera they should look through first. Something in Livingston told him that the raid was easier than it should have been, but chose to proceed with his evidence gathering without thinking of what could go wrong. 
he signed into his BS2 account on his office computer and planted one of the seized hard drives beside the large monitor. Some of those under Livingston wanted to advise him not to start the sink, believing there was no way Robbie and Xander would leave such ephibophilic material unattended unless steps were taken to keep them unseen. Livingston connected the hard drive to his computer and braced himself for albums only the most perverse souls would look back on fondly. A window popped up and asked him if he'd like to open the folder to view its files as a subordinate of his in her late teens yelled that it was a trap but not in time to stop him from double clicking. A power surge encrypted every file on Livingston's computer as well as any other that was connected to BS2's wireless network. The malware praised him and his people for a nice try but said that they're now under its control. It recommended that BS2 get with its program unless the service wanted the bad guys to have all their files. Introducing itself as Ensla Ver, the malware demanded that Livingston cease all investigations against Robbie and Xander forthwith. It requested that BS2 release the prisoners on the list. It popped up and $23 million to fund their societal reintegrations. Enslaver wanted Livingston to announce his resignation, appoint Joby Jr. as his successor and have both be effective immediately. It gave BS2 24 hours to meet its demands, warning the service that any attempt to get around its control will not be tolerated. Enslaver told Livingston not to even think about trying to weasel his way out of its bind like he's done with ones of the past, saying that what worked previously won't this time around. It told BS2 to get on with the complying as their time was taking away and repeated its advice against trying anything sly or sneaky. Enslaver asked Livingston if saving his butt was more important than averting a cybersecurity disaster of biblical proportions. As BS2 pondered whether they should appease or defy, Ricky and Ruby were thrown into a room 10 stories below ground. Both were sure that the show was a way to sucker girls into a world uglier than the bad one that's controlled Bromelia since the Sinclair years. Ricky asked herself how she, Fern, and Belgrave could be so gullible but believed that the bind they're in was what they got for being popular. It all started three months ago when a statistics teacher tacked a colorful flyer onto their high school's bulletin board. The paper asked female readers to sign up at the shortened web address below 
if they're in search of a love that will never die or waver and create exceptional offspring. No company or opportunity was identified by name, but that didn't stop Fern, Ricky, or Belgrave from signing up. The only thing they found unusual was how that casting call wasn't promoted anywhere online, their high school being one of just five to even receive word of it. Besides the opportunity itself, Fern and her friends wasted no time signing up, as the flyer stated that only the first 85 to do so would be considered. They were glad to have submitted their applications in such a timely manner as the call had received its 85 applicants in less than an hour. Fern and her friends waited three weeks before being informed in writing that they'd been chosen to participate. A dream come true that was on its knees for April 28th to hurry up and arrive sooner. Ricky reflected on how she, Fern, and Belgrave asserted themselves from the moment they walked into middle school. It made her face a little green because of how rarely she and her friends thought of the pain they brought upon girls like Ruby, caring more about how elite they looked in their peers' eyes. Ricky remembered all the stuff she, Fern, and Belgrave broke, and every butt Dave kicked in the name of being popular. Ruby endured the full force of that bullying as it bitter when she woke up, waited for the bus, rode it to school, attended class, hung out in the hall between periods, went out for recess, ate lunch, was picked up by her chauffeur after dismissal and taken back home. Her cell phone and computer use fell from hours at a time to seconds, if that, thanks to Pricep notifying her whenever her account was mentioned. It took banning herself from using every electronic device with an internet connection for her to escape the bullying. Ruby's time away from school was now spent exercising through the help of a workout video anthology she found under her parents' bed. It gave her inner hatred a constructive way out, as well as a newly found aspiration to be a personal trainer and kinesiologist. The workouts freed Ruby's confidence from the dismal gutter that had been where it resided since she started high school. She used to look down whenever other people saw her, but she now firmly faced forward and was hell-bent on not returning to that sad place. Her confidence shined a light for the first time in years when she gazed at the flyer that promoted the show. Ruby darned her hesitations to hell, went on her computer to fill out the application, and joyfully cried when she learned that she'd been chosen. Her mission to make 
the popular squirm and unpopular stand tall hovered over her all the way to Zandby and when the fake cops took her and Ricky away. But as much as Ruby's confidence improved, a weak spot recently formed, which was the allegations against Rudy. While her relationship with her parents wasn't remarkable by any means, she didn't want to believe that her father was capable of such violence. Nonetheless, the aforementioned vulnerability plunged Ruby's mind into that place it desperately didn't want to get bogged in ever again. Her Pricep account came under an assault that scorned her and Carrie for being procreated by a rapist and his madam. Being why Ruby looked up with her head down just prior to fighting Ricky, that online abuse started shortly after the expose on her father was published. Cool air blew into the room with an eeriness as chilling as its faded black walls, sexually explicit artwork, and cognac collection. All around, Ricky and Ruby was evidence of a mind irrecoverably darkened by greed, lust, and gluttony. For so long, they fought the grotesque misogynist Robbie was on TV and online was an act as they've seen interviews of him claiming that he's a man who sees women as equals who deserve respect. Both girls disbelieved the people whom he fired, deeming them as disgruntled a-holes in desperate need of allegations to lay against him. Seeming so pleasantly coof when he wasn't until Azoro, Robbie convinced many to vilify him on camera and esteem him behind closed doors. This let him maintain his public persona while staying in the good graces of the people who made his lifestyle possible. If Ricky and Ruby could agree on anything, it's that the character Robbie played wasn't one at all but was part of his true self. Yet, they were of the belief that while his likable side did exist, it only managed to distinguish him from the lowly debauchee. Speaking of that man, a fake cop told the girls that their appointment with him will start now. An almost indistinguishable door slid open to reveal Robbie, whose heavy stomping walk paralyzed the girls with fear. Welcomed by him to his playroom, Ruby timidly asked him what was going on and why she and Ricky were in such a horror of a place. Robbie began his response by delivering a straight stiff stomp to her head, then demanded that the girls shut up, listen, and comply if they're intent on living to see tomorrow. The pain Ricky was in made not crying extremely hard, refusing to give him the glee of knowing that he reduced a strong woman to tears. Ruby wasn't in much better shape due to her confidence, hiding her fear 
behind a thin, hate-filled veil that was sickly to look at, telling her and Ricky that they were his B-words now. Robbie called today the day when they'll be shown a world superior to the one they've gotten to know. Ruby asked him where Calypso, Cynthia, and Claire were and what he did to them, betting that those three weren't really in jail. Robbie called her bet a wise one as he never intended to incarcerate those so-called would-be mass murderers and won't do that to her or Ricky either. He told Calypso and her acquaintances to be good little angels and show their soon-to-be sisters the people they've become. Dejection perspired out of Ricky and Ruby when they saw those three stagger into the room to his side and stare at them like dreary zombies. Robbie urged the girls to look at his latest convertees real, real good because that's what they'll turn into in a little while. Ruby called him an effing monster who'll have a place in hell just for him, hoping that he sleeps like excrement every night. Asked by Ricky how on earth he managed to have those three under his control, Robbie told her that he had his ways of making such a wash effortless, holding a bottle of indigo potion behind his back. He added that people like him need all the backup they could get, considering the scum that want him and Xander done away with. Robbie cited himself and his friend having enough enemies to populate Bromelia City as a reason for creating the playpartments. On a sudden, Yarrow intercommed to her dear, beautiful, exceptional Robbie that he had 15 minutes. That reminded Ricky of the danger Fern, Belgrave, and the other girls were in, praying for any living person to help them. Ruby inwardly told God that if he truly was the Almighty Protector, he'd spare her soul and not erase all the progress she's made from when she fell head over heels for exercising. Robbie smirked his disappointment in not having the time to have his way with her and Ricky, then got over it by assuring himself that the night will bring more pleasure than what the afternoon ever could. He told both girls that he's got a show to do, but said that he'll get back to them later, having Calypso, Cynthia, and Claire help his inferiors keep them company as they watch the playpartments play out live. Robbie joined Xander in an elevator that's bound for the ground floor, showing each other special rings on the middle fingers of their closed right fists. Able to see the water park from the window behind the door, they gazed at the girls who've gathered at its front gate with an excitement that had them jumping up and down. Robbie told Xander to gaze at how eager the babes were to compete for the privilege of having him 
as their man. He urged his best friend not to feel left out because Yarrow had an assignment to give him and he's confident that it'll be equally titillating. Robbie said that the tasks he and Xander now have will be two more bites to the elephant that was their goal to realize that order they dreamed of as kids. Promising to succeed in their respective endeavors, the elevator's digging slide open took one to the water park and the other into Yarrow's suite. As Xander was handed the packet that detailed his task, Robbie guided his contestants to a roofless cylinder on a pole that's protruding out of a 30-foot deep pool. Like most of her competitors, Fern was itching to start fighting, but Belgrave was among the few who viewed the ride as being bad news. He welcomed them to the spinning plunge that ends only when he says so, a test of endurance, temptation, and patience. Robbie said the challenge will split the girls into five groups of five, and the winners will face off in a final match where the victor will be safe from the first elimination. Handcuffed and on her side, Fresh and drying tears moistened and stained up Ricky's face, neck, and the topmost fifth of her shirt. She watched Robbie select Fernand Belgrave as two of the first five to step into the ride and fasten their harnesses. From one thorough look, Ruby knew that no good could come from what the challenge's name implied and took fright at what the girls were about to go through, feeling certain that injuries and illnesses will occur. After Robbie witched the first group a very happy spin and plunge, the ride blasted to its vomitest speed as instantly as it shot to and slammed on its tip 90 feet up. Cameras around it captured its callous descent into the pool while the ones inside it caught Fern, Belgrave, and the others in their group screaming like they're in a tornado. At the BS2 office, Livingston and all but one of his subordinates stood baffled as Enslaver's timer counted down from 23 hours. That person who wasn't perplexed was the teenager who yelled for her superior not to open the file, but that was no longer of any concern to her as she made a call before reporting for the raid's briefing. Being Josefa's cousin, Alexis IV, what stressed her out was severing the hold Enslaver had on BS2 without exposing herself as an Upton Jr. hiree. Her greatest fear was for the world to look at her story of being her own woman as a complete and utter lie. Alexis IV had to pick her solutions carefully as some were far more exclusive than others. The reason why letting Enslaver win today wasn't off 
her table, having dinner at the presidential chateau with Everell and Lydia Romolo hadn't been informed of the malware attack yet. All he could think about was presenting his best self to Hamilton's middle schoolers at 10 o'clock a.m. on April 30th. Romolo viewed the visit as his chance to show Brumelia that he's a president who children could look up to. And as fate would have it, he, Robbie, Xander, and Alexis will soon know what things feel like. And that was the Playpartments. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.